Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, we believe that you have defeated death, that you have conquered our enemy, that you have put an end to the power of sin. God, we thank you that because those are true, there is no need for us to fear. God, we pray this morning that we would see Jesus as the exalted one, that you would use your word here in Colossians to remind us of the beauty and the greatness of Jesus. God, I pray for those in this room who have allowed Jesus just to become an abstract icon of their faith and not a personal uh, being, that you would move in their hearts today. I pray that you would challenge the complacent, that you would comfort the anxious, that you would give joy to the weary and hope to the hopeless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we find ourselves at the end of the journey of the book of Colossians. We've spent almost four months walking through the treasures of uh, this Christ-exalting letter. And you know me well enough to know that whenever we get to the end of a book, I get a little bit sad. I I view Paul and and what we've learned from Colossians as close friends of mine over the last couple of months that I have to kind of put to the side and uh, and kind of move on to the next book. Fortunately, we're going to be looking at the book of uh, 1 Corinthians starting next week. So we're going to stick with uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, but I'm just so thankful for all the Lord, all that the Lord has shown us um, throughout the last couple of months in these four chapters. Well, as we close out the book today, uh, we're going to be looking at Paul's uh, final greetings, his final instructions, and two things that are really, really important that Paul shows us. Now, we only have time to look at one of those today, But the two things that he shows us as he kind of lands the plane in this letter is the first one is he shows us the importance of godly friendships and relationships in the midst of life and ministry. You probably noticed this as I read these verses that there are 11 different individuals that he names here and all of them are real, right? It's kind of hard to to picture that sometimes. We look at the Bible and think of all these names, but these are real people who had a real influence upon Paul in his life and his ministry. And he mentions them here because you simply can't do Christianity isolated from other people. But the second thing, and this is what we're going to spend our time on this morning, is that there is a strong warning here in these last couple of verses that we need to hear today. This warning you may not notice at first glance, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that it is the year 2055. I want you to imagine with me for a moment, it's 35 years later since we opened up this building, 35 years later since uh, COVID came onto the scene. We're all 35 years older. And I want you to picture what our church is like 35 years from now. Lord willing, it is healthier. It is godlier. Lord willing, we are more in love with Jesus. But I want you to imagine with me uh, that if our church wasn't healthy, I want you to picture our church has, has kind of shifted from Jesus being the center. I want you to imagine 35 years from now, if we received a letter from Jesus Christ himself that said this, to the angel of Pennington Park Church in Fisher's right, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, receiving a letter like that from Jesus 35 years from now would be frightening. This would be a a very sobering experience to have Jesus himself Um, basically indict us with a spiritual faith that has become lukewarm. Uh, For him to say that we're relying more on our material possessions and wealth than Jesus himself, that we're blind to our own neediness of Christ, and, and even to hear Jesus earnestly call us to repent. Now, if that were to happen, no doubt we would be asking the question, how did we get here How did we go from from being a church that's centered on Jesus to slowly drifting away from keeping the main one the main thing? Well, that's exactly what happened to the church, not at Colossae, but the church at Laodicea. And why bring up the church at Laodicea? Well, because the letter that I just read from Jesus a moment ago is a real letter that Jesus wrote to a church named Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, 35 years later from when Colossians was written. In fact, 35 years later from chapter 14, verses 15 and 16, where Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter, Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, so so follow this with me. Laodicea was only 10 miles away from Colossae, that Paul wrote all kinds of instructive letters to the, the churches in the first century, and they were kind of passing these letters back and forth. Well, presumably, Colossians was given to the church at Laodicea and they read it. They read and they, they heard all of these rich truths about Jesus. And yet something happened to that church where 35 years later, they're now spiritually lukewarm. They just kind of slowly drifted away from Jesus. My question for us this morning, just to kind of help us think about the health of our church, to think even about the trajectory of our church, is how did that happen to the church of Laodicea, right? I mean, we can't know for sure, but, but if we just had a, an opportunity to sit down with the church of Laodicea and all we had what was the, the Colossian letter, and we were to, to kind of point out some of these truths that we've been learning in order to call them back to Jesus being the main thing, what would we say to them? What would we remind them of that they had forgotten? Well, I know for me, I would point out three things in the book of Colossians to kind of call them back. And this is kind of a a warning for us not to drift away from Jesus being the center. Here's the first thing that I would point out is that the preeminence of Christ 
is over all things, not just over salvation, but it's over every area of our lives. I'm using the word uh, preeminence from chapter 1, verse 18, the, the word that Paul uses to mean that Jesus is completely superior over all things. In other words, there's no category, there's no word that you can use to, to describe the supremacy of Christ, that he's in a league all by himself. He's over all things and he's above all things. That Paul has been wanting us to see that Jesus is the main one that must be the main thing. In fact, Paul uh, has referred to Jesus over 30 different times in these four chapters. 95 verses in Colossians and over 30 times he's talking about Jesus. You can't help but read this letter. And as we've walked through this letter, your, your heart is flooded with the beauty and the power and the incomparable worth of Christ. Well, the issue that the Colossians faced and presumably the church at Laodicea is that they were fine with Jesus. They were okay with Jesus being preeminent in the salvation box or the salvation compartment but they were failing to connect the preeminence of Jesus in all of these other categories, like the relationships and the workplace and their words and philosophy and satisfaction and dozens of other areas of their lives. And so they were being tempted by these false teachers to start to look for other things to fulfill them and to guide them. Well, the way that Paul addresses that air is he unpacks and connects the preeminence of Jesus in dozens of areas. Let me just point out a few that we've seen uh, so far. If you remember, Paul showed us the unique role of Christ and really the exclusive role in making the invisible God visible. Chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of God. There's no more guessing what God is like. All we have to do is look to Christ. In fact, without Jesus, we're really just left with the shadows of trying to figure out who God is and what he is like. We also saw that Jesus's preeminence is over all of creation. That Jesus is not first in order over creation, but he is first in rank, that he is above all things. Jesus is the prototype or the template by which all things have been created. In fact, Jesus is the source of all creation. Chapter 1, verse 16, that all things were created in heaven and on earth by Jesus. In fact, if you checked the label of everything that's been created, you would see this little tag on it that says, made by King Jesus. That Jesus has put every star in the sky, every planet in the universe, every blade of grass, every hair on your head. And yet he's not only the source, he's also the agent, right? He's not just, not everything's been created by him, but it's also been created through Jesus. And it's all for Christ. Paul reminded us that Jesus is the goal of creation, that everything has been created for Jesus's purpose, his pleasure, and his praise. And then Paul took it a step further and reminded us that Jesus actually sustains all things, that he didn't just get this thing started. It's not just all for him, but he holds everything together. And I think understanding the intricacies of Jesus's power over all creation, both in the minute detail of what we can see under a microscope 
and the vastness of what we can see through the telescope should fill us with worship and awe and lead us to surrender every area of our lives. See, this is the, I think, the tension that we need to embrace in the Christian life is that, yes, Jesus is preeminent over all things. Yes, Jesus sustains and he holds the whole universe together by the word of his power, but Jesus also sustains your life today. That Jesus knows everything that's going on in your life, every detail, every burden, every worry, every fear, every struggle that you are going through, and he is sustaining you by the word of his power. So I think the temptation here is to, is to think about the omnipotence of Christ and the authority of his power and, and that he's above and beyond all things. And it's so easy to, to kind of kind of push him out there and to not make him a personal God. So the, the challenge here is to not allow the preeminence to negate his intimate involvement and the personal awareness that Jesus has over your life. See, yes and amen, Jesus holds the whole universe together, every molecule, but he also is sustaining you today. And that's the reality that we face, is that you and I, we, we don't hold our own lives together, but Jesus holds our lives together. That our lives, our lives are not being held together because of our own ability, or because we're organized, or because we're prepared, or because we have everything lined up. Our lives are not being held together based on who is in the White House or based on how well-behaved our kids are or how well they're doing in school or, or what COVID is doing. No, our lives are being held together because Jesus Christ is on the throne and he is giving you every breath that you breathe and every grace that you need. Jesus is the preeminent one over all creation. But not only that, Paul also connects the preeminence of Jesus in the church over his own bride. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul talks about Jesus being the head. He's the, the leader, the, the source of life and direction for us in the church. Like Jesus is the reason why we're in this room right now. Like We're not in this room right now because we need to appear to be religious or spiritual. We're not, we're not at church today because we've got nothing else going on on a Sunday morning. No, we're in this church right now because Jesus has done something to our lives. He's changed us. He's altered. He's messed us up in the greatest way possible through unleashing his grace and saving us. That Jesus is the center of why we gather. Paul also connects Jesus' preeminence to the gospel. That Jesus uh, is, is the king, and he is the one who has made the good news of God's saving plan even possible to save sinners like you and me. Remember, we, we wrestled and we thought through for a moment what our lives would be like if Jesus didn't save us. Imagine the lostness and the brokenness and the darkness and just being left to our own sin if Jesus didn't save us. I know what my life would be like, my life would be in ruins. My life would be a train wreck, just trying to find the next satisfaction after the next satisfaction of this world. And yet Paul reminded us that Jesus is the one who is reconciling all things to himself through his own blood that he shed on the cross. 
chapter 1, verse 13, that Jesus is the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his own kingdom. Chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus is the one who has purchased our redemption, that he has enabled forgiveness of all of our sins, not just some of our sins, not just the small ones, but all of our sins can be forgiven. Chapter 2, verse 13, that even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, that God in Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us, took that long, long, long sheet of paper that has all of our sin on it, and God just ripped it up because our sins have been paid in full because of Jesus. Look, Paul, again and again, shows us the preeminence of Jesus in and through the gospel to make it abundantly clear that Jesus and Jesus alone did something that you and I could not do, and that is to purchase our forgiveness, that Jesus is the one that saves us. Look, and there's dozens of other things that Paul connects the preeminence of Jesus to, and we traced all of them, but Paul wants us to know that he is preeminent over all things. We looked at that word all in chapters one and two. It's all over the place. It's all inclusive what Jesus is preeminent over. Now, why? What's Paul's point in all of that? Paul's point, as we saw, is that seeing the supremacy of our Savior will lead to surrendering to him in everything. And this is what I would call the church at Laodicea, if I'm having coffee with them, that I want them to see Christ who is supreme, who is preeminent, not just over salvation, not just over our eternity, but over every area, every category in life. Because when we see Jesus in that light, it leads to surrendering every area of our lives and following Christ. So that's the first thing. That's where I would start. And if they're still listening to me, then I'd take them to point number two here. The second thing I'd point out in Colossians is that the fullness of Christ is enough. See, there's, there's an issue here in uh, the church of Colossae that Paul addressed. It was kind of this floating philosophy that Jesus wasn't quite complete to give them everything they needed. They developed this Jesus and philosophy where they were okay with Jesus, but he wasn't quite enough. And so they had to add on to Jesus. Well, watch how Paul addresses uh, this issue in these two key passages. Paul says in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Chapter 1, verse 19 says, For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see how Paul tries to address the tendency to add on to Jesus? Paul says that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that mean? That means that all that God is, Jesus is. That everything that is holy, Jesus is. Everything that is just, Jesus is. Everything that is gracious, Jesus is. Everything that is merciful, Jesus is. The point here is that there is nothing that is lacking in the sufficiency of Jesus. So practically speaking, Jesus is all that you need in this life and the life to come. 
that you don't need to look outside of Jesus to, to define your identity, to find satisfaction, to find purpose, and to find acceptance. You have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. I know practically for me, going through this book, this has been so helpful because of, of the perpetual desire that I find in my flesh to want to fill up my life with the things of this world, right? I'm, I'm bombarded with that on a daily basis to look at the fullness of Jesus and say, yeah, that's not quite enough. I need to fill up what he's kind of lacking in my own life. And I think that's, that's one of the most dangerous and effective temptations that you and I face is to look at Jesus and for the lie to come knocking at the door of our hearts and to say, Jesus is good, but he won't fully satisfy you. There's something that's lacking here, so you need to look to pornography in order to fulfill you. You need to look to a relationship in order to fulfill you. You need to get married. You need to have kids. You need to have a certain kind of friend in order to fulfill you. You need to have a, a certain kind of career or make a certain kind of amount of money or have a certain kind of body shape or, or a certain kind of house or clothing or fashion in order to fulfill you because there's something in Christ that's lacking. And yet Paul addresses that head on by reminding us that everything that we need is found in Christ and God in Jesus has filled us up with the fullness of Jesus. But here's the challenge, is that if there was such a thing as a spiritual x-ray, and you had a spiritual x-ray done of, of your own heart and your own life, what would that reveal as far as what's filling up your heart today? Is it Jesus, or, or is it the things of this world? Or, or maybe even more dangerous, is it a little bit of Jesus and a few things of this world so that the things of this world are starting to crowd out the person of Jesus. So I think this false teaching that was running rampant throughout Colossae and throughout Laodicea is still popular uh, today in the church of Jesus Christ among believers. Jesus is great for salvation. I'll trust him with, with my eternity. But on a day in, day out basis, is Jesus truly enough for us? Look, we need to be able to be skilled enough to use the word of God and to know how to point and direct our hearts to seeing the fullness of Christ in order to combat these temptations that we face on a daily basis. You need to be able to use the word of God when you hear the lie of sexual sin that's knocking at the door of your life saying, you need this in order to be satisfied. You need to use the word and say, you know what, Psalm 1611 says that in God's presence, there's actually fullness of joy. I don't need that sexual sin. That when you hear the, the lie and the temptations coming, knocking at the door of your heart saying, you need a certain kind of, of relationship in order to give you worth, in order to give you an identity, you can respond with Psalm 118 that says the steadfast love of God endures forever and that's enough for me. When you hear that your career will satisfy you, making a certain amount of money or a certain kind of house will satisfy you, you can respond with Ephesians 1.11 that says you are a co-heir with Christ and you have the richest inheritance in the universe because everything that Jesus has, you will inherit as well. You need to use the word of God to direct your heart to the fullness of Christ because he is 
enough. And there was something going on at the church of Laodicea where they weren't connecting that. They weren't trusting. They weren't experiencing the fullness of Jesus. And let's be on guard. Let's take that warning because we can fall into that same danger. Well, again, if this church is still listening to me, remember they're lukewarm, but if they're still listening, there's another thing that I would point out. This is a major, major theme throughout Colossians is I would talk about our position in Jesus and how it shapes our behavior. Being united in Christ, being one with Christ, our identity in Jesus was all over this book, especially in chapter three. We talked about how being united in Jesus means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, which is a great reminder because so often you kind of hear this throughout the world that Christianity is about me and Jesus. It's about Jesus and me as if, you know, we're driving the car in, in, in our lives and, and we get saved and we allow Jesus to just ride shotgun. And yet I'm still going to drive. It's me and Jesus here. He's going to direct me, but I'm still really driving my life. Paul would say, no, no, no. It's not you and Jesus. It's you in Jesus and Jesus in you, which changes everything. See, one of the key verses in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. All throughout this letter, Paul is defining who we are as Christians. He wants us to know what our identity is, and he uses those two words, in Christ or in him, to show that. He used that over 10 different times throughout these four chapters. He used it in chapter 2, verse 2, to talk about us being united in Christ. He talked about it in chapter 2, verse 10, about being complete in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6, that we're walking in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7, we're rooted in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7, still built up in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20, that we've died in Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1, we've been buried with Christ and we are now raised with Christ. What is Paul's point with this? Paul wants us to be defined by who Jesus is. And this has to be a constant reminder for us that you are not defined by the things of this world. You're not defined by the sins in your past. You're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by what other people say that you are. You're not defined by your job and your relationships. You are defined by Christ and being hidden in Jesus. So chapter three is so important. Chapter three, verse one, for united in Christ, we are now hidden in Jesus, which means you've already died to sin. You've already been raised up with Christ. You are already seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, hidden in Christ, which means you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless, you are loved, and you are accepted. And Paul's point is, hey, walk in that reality now. Live out who you are in Christ. That's why he emphasizes this. It's to bridge that gap between our position in Christ and our practice here in Indiana in 2020. Chapter three was so uh, instrumental in our study. This is one of the most practical chapters, I think, in all of the New Testament. We looked at the big idea here that your position in Christ determines your priorities. 
shapes your perspective and empowers your practice. Okay, understanding who you are in Christ impacts everything. And when we understand who we are in Christ and who we really are in Jesus, we understand that there is nothing that we lack as it relates to the spiritual resources that are available to us in Jesus. And when we understand that, we start to connect the dots. We start to think about our thinking, right? We seek the things that are above. We start to put to death the sin that's in our lives by not addressing the symptoms, but addressing the root issue. And then we start wearing the right kind of spiritual wardrobe. We put off those old worn out clothes of the old man of our flesh, and we put on the spiritual wardrobe of the new man. Those clothes that are marked by compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with one another, forgiving one another and having that harmonious love. And those things are so important because it impacts every area, impacts our marriages, impacts our parenting, children, it impacts how you obey mom and dad, impacts who we are in the workplace, impacts our prayer lives and our evangelism. It touches everything because what we do and the decisions that we make flows out of who we think that we are and our identity. So if you find yourself even this morning, just like the church at Laodicea, where you're wearing the wrong kind of spiritual clothes, you're wearing the clothes of the old man, and you're noticing some vices in your life, you are failing to connect who you are in Christ and how that shapes your behavior. And look, I know the reality is this morning is that I can't talk to the church at Laodicea. I wish I could. I wish I could remind them of the truth in here. But the reality is, is that I can talk to some people in this room right now and people who are listening who find themselves in the exact same position at the church at Laodicea who are spiritually lukewarm. There might be some who are in this room right now and you have been trying to live with this Jesus and philosophy. Jesus is fine but he's not enough and I need to add on to him. And, and I just want to call you this morning to come back to Jesus being the main thing in your life, to living out that Jesus needs to be central. Jesus needs to be the core of your life and everything needs to flow out of that reality. Look, it reminds me of, of being a good runner. I'm not a good runner, I'm more short distance, but I know from runners is that that when they're trying to train for a race and they're trying to prepare, they're not just addressing the muscles in their leg, they're addressing the core. They're addressing the muscles in here because this impacts everything. And if they neglect the core and the muscles there, it's going to cause the other muscles in their body to overwork, to be strained, that they could become tired and fatigued or, or to have some sort of injury. Look, the same is true if you neglect Jesus being the core of your life. And the reality is, is that there are some who are just addressing every other area of your life except for Jesus at the core of your life. So the takeaway of this book is to keep Jesus the main one, the main thing, because vibrancy flows out of that. Focus on Christ being on the throne of your life, and that will impact your relationships, that will impact who you are in the workplace, that will impact your thought life and what you're watching on the internet, that will impact your words, impact your prayer life, impact your evangelism, when Jesus 
is the core of your life. Well, as we close this morning, I just want to give you just a, a couple of minutes just to reflect on this book. I know that we've spent a few months on here, and there's so many things that we've seen. God has blessed us richly. And I think the temptation is to look at this book and to say, thanks God for the things that I've learned, and yet to walk away unchanged by them. And so I just want to challenge you over the next couple of moments just to, just to recall to mind things that God has, has shown you over the last couple of months, that maybe you've brought your notes here, or you, take, or you have a journal that you, you know, take notes during the sermon, you want to review some of those things. Maybe there's been a key verse or a key phrase or, or something that God has pressed upon your heart and your life. I just want to encourage you to take the next couple of moments to reflect on that, to ask God to continue to change you so Jesus can be on the throne of your life. Why don't you do that over the next couple of minutes, and then we'll close singing our last song together.